this is Nara Montero. I'm one of the hosts of Iconicast, the companion podcast to Iconoclast Collective, Western's arts, culture, and politics publication. Right now, you're hearing from your directors, Nara Montero and Jerrica Kaduhada. A little bit later, we'll be bringing in Danielle Solo, a poet, student, and longtime contributor to Iconoclast, and Dr. Kyle Gervais, graduate chair and a professor in the classics department here at Western. A lot of people have heard this story a number of times, but um, a number of us got together just in one of my friend's dorm rooms in first year, and we were talking about uh, art and the kind of space that we wanted to see on campus uh, for multimedia art and for uh, an intersection of discussions and topics and mediums. So we really felt like there was a place for the arts community from a number of different faculties, whether you were studying microbiology or visual arts, to come together and to put their work together. Um, so the five of us, uh, Nara, Sema, Deanna, Emily, and Emma, decided to start this publication um, and this collective and run events and put together some lovely art. You've been here for a year now. What do you think makes ICON different from the other student publications on campus? As you probably already know, this is something that we we say multiple times when discussing ICON with others, is that Iconoclast is really founded on conversation, and that comes in two different ways. We have in-depth conversations with our contributors where we're very open about the editing process because we want to help our contributors improve, but we also try to put the works in our publication in conversation with each other, so we're also very careful with the curation process. I mean, like just this year, we had the 5 a.m. meeting (laughs) to sit down and figure out what visuals worked with which pieces, which themes worked well and like kind of contrasted each other to make the readers think even deeper about them when put next to each other. So Iconoclast is really founded on that conversation, that relationship between artists that we either hold with them ourselves when we're doing the editing process or like kind of uh, make them hold with each other on the page. So Iconoclast has had a variety of themes. This semester is mythic, but we've also come up with hyphen, quiet riot, plastos. So all of these dealing with a whole bunch of variety of topics. Why do we have these themes? What are What is the objective of having these themes in the publication? We want people to be in conversation with each other, as we've said, and you can't really do that when everyone's sort of with total dissonance, just sort of saying their ideas into the void. We <laughs> want to have a springboard for people to converge on. And we feel really do that with these themes. That's been the biggest point of growth for ICON. We continually add more and more discussion around the themes as we grow. So uh, speaking of themes, why don't you tell us about how we got to the theme mythic? Ooh, this one was fun. I think Jarek and I jumped on these ones, this one for different reasons. I was very interested in the idea of how storytelling influences our lives, um, particularly the subconscious, and I ended up writing about that for, for Mythic. We function in a way of sort of narrativizing. It's a way to make sense out of chaos, and so I personally believe everybody does it. There's a lot to work with in that well yeah, I feel like Icon has, in terms of visuals at least, our works are usually, even the design of the magazine, so not the stuff that, that are submitted to us, they're very contemporary. The theme myth that kind of pushes us to go back way deeper in history and kind of pull up those old visual themes and like techniques, the ornate frames, all of that stuff, which I don't think you see much in the media or kind of art that we see today. 
What are some of the narratives that you think have shaped you as an individual? Do you still believe in them or follow them and why or why not? This one is a bit of an interesting one because I think it's a narrative that I have seen on media, heard about in my real life. And it's obviously when you're like your own life is your own narrative, right? So you kind of write the story of your own life, but it's like there are so many other narratives going on around you and based on the characteristics of your story you kind of feel like it must go specific ways if it's like if it fits this kind of category or genre and well long story short I'm from an immigrant family we immigrated here in Canada in 2008 and I have always been exposed to those narratives where you come from like poor country to a to a country with full full of opportunities, um, and your parents did it to give you, to give you access to those opportunities and make the most out of life. So you can it's like that rags and riches story, which is um, puts a lot of pressure, obviously, on the immigrant children. So I feel like that's a narrative that's influenced my life in both negative and positive ways. Positively, it's pushed me to work harder because like Philippines was amazing. But it's in comparison to like Canada, there's some stereotypes there that kind of render me a little bit like I'm I'm starting off a little lower and I have to kind of work harder to kind of prove myself here. It's pushed me to work harder and I think I've achieved a lot of success. But also this narrative has negatively influenced me because, you know, I should be striving for success, not because I'm trying to fit a mold, not because it's what I'm supposed to do, but because I'm genuinely passionate about the things that I'm doing. And with that passion, I will achieve success. This is where my thinking comes from. And just because this is a story that is so prevalent in a lot of aspects of my life doesn't mean that it's a story that I have to kind of adapt into mine. Um, If it is, like, that's great. I mean, like, the end of the story is, like, the person's successful. So I'm not going to say no to that. Um, But that's, like, this this story should not be the reason why I strive for success and should not be the reason why I'm successful. There should be a lot of other motivating factors to it. I mean, you come from an immigrant background. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I came to Canada when I was six from Brazil. Um, I didn't so much feel pressure from the typical rag-to-riches narrative. My parents were always kind of shying away from that idea. The particular Latin American immigrant experience is very characterized by American Hispanic culture, Mm. and I don't quite share that very specific experience. Um, so it's kind of been a little difficult to understand my experience as an immigrant without any sort of guidance. So there's almost been like a lack of narrative there for the particular Brazilian experience. So if you've read the description for the mythic theme, we refer to two different definitions of mythic. I have them with me right now. So the first one is a traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining a natural or social phenomenon typically involving supernatural beings or events. Second definition, much shorter, is a widely held but false belief or idea. So I think the difficulty of differentiating between mythology and religion, it comes from the fact that we usually interpret myths as that second definition, as inherently false um, but a commonly held belief. Whereas if you took the first definition that we, that we give, mythology and religion are not very different. They both try to explain the world, the origins of the world, in relation to something that is higher than what we experience as in our earthly lives. Mythology was religion for the ancients. It was one and the same. 
it's only become mythology as we've lost the population that is invested in those stories as their belief system. I think a huge part of mythic is the fact that the myths that are at play in our lives are different for every single person. And they all influence our lives in different ways. And the, obviously, because of the intricacies of our identity, our understanding of the world differs. But we are still interested in how you understand belief. Hello, my name is Aisha Khan, and I am a host of Iconocast, the companion podcast to Western's arts, culture, and politics collective, Iconoclast. I have Danielle Solo with me here today. A Western student, Danielle is a talented poet and has been a longtime contributor to Icon and is just as excited as we are for our upcoming publication, Mythic. So, Danielle, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Yourself? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I was wondering if you could tell us a little more about yourself, Danielle. Um, how do you sum up your wonderful personality in a few sentences? Oh, gosh. Um, I, for starters, I never shut up. And then people started telling me to shut up. So I just put it on paper and hoped it worked out. <laughs> I used to describe my work as like a romantics poet, but like spoiled by teenage angst. And uh, I think that's the best description I've come up with so far. So we'll go with that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I'm going to get straight into it. Danielle, sure. your poem, Hearsay, in Icon's last semester issue, Hyphen. I was speechless after I read it. So it's very connected to religion. And I also read Prophet in the upcoming issue, Mythic, which also draws from a biblical story. So what I want to ask is, uh, where does that impulse come from? And what's your relationship to religion? Okay. So I was baptized and confirmed Roman Catholic. So I was just basically like raised and steeped in that culture. It, you know, like it's very ritualized. And I mean, Catholic school kind of explains itself. <laughs> um, but my family's very, very hypocritical when it comes to religion. So my mom's side is Roman Catholic. That's where I was raised. And my dad's side is like Anglican and other forms of uh, like Catholicism or Christianity. And so growing up, it was very, very prominent that you had to follow what the Bible said. Like, as a woman, you can't dress scandalously, obviously. You can't swear. You know, you're a woman. So you graduate high school, you get married, you pump out a ton of kids and hope it works out. And I was like, I don't want to do that. So I kind of just started not paying as much attention to it. Like, it just didn't vibe with me very well. So, you know, I came to Western. I didn't really go to church. I didn't really do anything religious anymore like I used to have to pray every night like that was a thing like my family would come up and make sure you were praying every night and um, yeah I just stopped doing that and then I kind of got into like just mysticism and different kinds of religion just exploring really in second year and I kind of came back into the Roman Catholicism but in kind of what I call an eccentric way so I mean I definitely believe in like the Roman Catholic God Jesus all of that stuff but I also don't necessarily think that everything in the Bible has to be taken literally so I mean there are forms of like what you could call witchcraft in the Bible like in terms of like prophetic visions with Ezekiel but that's really condemned in the um, Catholic tradition and just parts of it that it fit with me I took and then what didn't I just kind of cast aside and then whatever like interested me from different religions like even ancient Greek polytheism I just kind of like looked into that and whatever you know fit I just kind of smushed together so that's, I don't know I don't know if that answers the question no it's uh, <laughs> definitely like it's brave I think it's very brave because uh 
growing up, I mean, as a university student, like, we're so young. It's crazy how um, your father's side had another thing, your mother's side had another thing, and you yeah. really, you're, you're at odds sometimes, especially with, like, the world today and then yeah. with what you believe in. It's like, and you are honestly brave to just oh, thank take you so what, much. what you need. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, I was just kind of, like, rebelling against what strict rules were put in place because I just, I don't fit well in a box, and okay. I don't like being told what to do, as cliche as that sounds. <laughs> No, it's very, uh, those views, um, prim, proper. I see that because uh, in our last year's issue in Quiet mm-hmm. Riot and how to nicely reject boys and hair, you artistically convey the sentiments that like many women go through in their lifetime. And yeah. they are influenced by their society. They're influenced by culture. They're influenced by religion. And like it's this mix that give birth to um, the ways in which we're supposed to act. Yeah. So um, it's a universal struggle, and that's sad because whatever should be a blessing in our lives ends up becoming a curse. Exactly. And now, be it our hair, be it our bodies, a woman is treated like an object, and then she's expected to be nice to, I don't know, I'm going to call them predators, as you did, (laughs) (laughs) and and to be silent. And so what I want to ask you is, um, can you speak to that? Why is this uh, something that needs to be talked about, whether it be through the religious lens, a cultural lens, a societal lens? Why, Why is this... This is important to you because it's something growing up you've been told that, oh, I'm guessing you have to sit properly like a lady. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. (laughs) If my, like, legs weren't crossed at the knee, my mom would force them at the knee. Oh, my goodness. Like, I went to school once, and I didn't shave my legs because I was just like, this is stupid. This is just a rule, and I don't want to follow it because, like, my legs are soft. Screw it. (laughs) And she was driving the car, and literally she pulled over, like, with one arm, and she was shaving my legs as she was driving because she was not going to let me go to school with, like— legs that had hair on them even though it's blonde so you can't really see it so yeah it's (laughs) it was definitely like very very strict and uh no you you can't really do too much (laughs) so because of your experiences is that what comes out in how to nicely reject boys and hair yeah that's kind of a mix of like just rules implemented in childhood of how to be ladylike how to be proper you know like you're like this soft gentile woman and you have to be like just servantile essentially even though my mom claimed she was a feminist like gender roles were very much implemented but at the same time too like within my own personal life within work life like you name it men are essentially as like as you said that I put it uh, predators like I can't go to work without being grabbed at I can't walk down the street without being catcalled. Like, even right now in my purse, I've got pepper spray, and I've got two work cutters just in case. Like, it's something you become very, very hyper-aware of very fast. You kind of learn that you have to defend yourself because nobody else is going to, especially, like, if anything happens and you go to people you trust and they don't support you. Like, that is a very real risk. So, in the end of the day, like, you have to look out for yourself. If you can't, you don't know what's going to happen to you. And if you don't have a stake in that, that's very, very dangerous, I think, at least. <laughs> I'm gonna, I've said it three times. I'm going to say it the fourth time. You're very, you're very brave and courageous for, for being able to, to not only um, talk about what you've been through, reject what you're seeing, but also... I, you're really helping other people because you're giving them oh a voice, God. too. That's, like, yeah, way, they, way too much if praise. They, <laughs> no, no, if they're reading this and, like, they, they see themselves in your work, I yeah. just... Whether they tell you or they don't oh, in gosh. their heart, you know, I, I think it's, it's wonderful. So oh, how do you speak to that? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, a lot of my work comes from personal experience. And the first publication that I actually bothered to send something out for was for Symposium, if you know Symposium on campus. And it was in my first year, the fall semester. It was called Cage Bird. And to this day, I cannot look at it because I cringe so hard. I'm just like, 
oh, that's, I've developed so far from that. I just, I don't <laughs> want to look at it. Let's toss it in the bin. But, <laughs> but yeah, like that was essentially just a description of something that had happened to me and I wasn't planning on doing anything with it. I just kind of wrote it. And when I was looking for something to submit, that was just what appeared to be the best piece that I had written. And so the way I kind of consoled myself with doing that was like, okay, yeah, people are going to read this and they're going to understand that something has happened. But if someone else is able to take that and find you know, like the comfort in, like someone understands what I've been going through. Something is shared, you know, someone understands because like, especially when it comes to like sexual assault and rape, which was like the subject of that poem, it is definitely a very isolating feeling. And especially when you know no one who has gone through it personally, or you're with very, you know, you have very strict figures in your life, you don't get, I don't want to say sympathy, but no one bothers to give you the time of day. They're just like, okay, that's great. You're used, you're done. And you had nothing to say with it, but it doesn't matter. Because it's like, well, what can you do now, you know? And so I think being able to speak about it was kind of both a form of relief, but at the same time, I was like, if someone else reads this and finds something in it, then I, I'm justified in admitting that something happened to me, and I'm justified in putting my work out. Like, I didn't want to just put out work in order to be like, look, I'm published and accomplished. Like, yay me. Uh, I definitely wanted to say something. Yes, the purpose so, of it. No, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I completely agree. And so I was focusing a lot on the past now. <laughs> this semester's uh, yeah, publication, yeah. Uh, this semester's publication, Mythic. What does myth mean to you? How do myths play into you being a writer and your experience with poetry and writing? Okay. Well, I guess people, when you look at a myth, you can say it's a story. And it's a story like with some lesson to teach you. Usually, like if you look at a Greek myth or if you look at even like a Bible passage, it usually has something to say, whether it's moralistic or whether it's like, this is how something happened. Here's an explanation. Um, and I think that's very, very powerful. And I do think that's like the essential of writing. It's like, like you have to have a story to say. You can't just put words on a page and hope it works out. Like even in experimental writing, it always has something to say. And I think the fact that myths are viewed in two different ways, like you can have someone who looks at um, like like I said, the Bible, and take that as literal word, like, you know, Genesis literally happened. Adam and Eve happened. That's a thing. And, you know, you can't change that view. It's so deeply ingrained, and it completely affects and changes and shapes a person. But on the other hand, you can have an atheist who looks at it and is like, yeah, that's a cool story. Great. I think that myths are essentially like the embodiment of art and just the just the two different directions that it can go. Either it means something to someone or it doesn't. And so... While I do have certain myths and, um, you know, religious beliefs that are important to me, at the end of the day, I look at them as stories and either I take something from them or I don't. And I kind of use that to inspire my own work. Look at what has been said and say, like, okay, what can I do in response to this? Which I guess kind of links to, like, modernist poetry if you look at the cantos from Ezra Pound and how he was basically rewriting the Iliad from Homer and just, like, a bunch of stuff. I think myths are just so ingrained in our you know, in our own development that we can't really get away from them. The best we can do is, like, respond to them or re-express them um, in whatever way means something to us, if that makes sense. I agree with uh, the idea of, of narratives and the roles in which they play in our life. And uh, you've talked about how, I guess, the religious narrative has come into your life and how that's yeah. impacted you. <laughs> do you want to talk specifically, like, what are some myths that you believe in or okay. have impacted okay. you? Okay, from the Catholic tradition, I'll grip on to, like, certain uh, aspects or even, like, little tidbits of, like, the saint stories that most people find grotesque and uh, 
stuff they just don't want to pay attention to. So like the blind eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like everyone loves the saints, but they don't really pay attention to how the saints died. It's like this the saint was really great for, you know, spreading the word of God. But I'm like, okay, but Saint Lawrence was literally like burned alive. Then he was like, turn me over. I'm not done on the, I'm done on this side already. And I was just like, oh that's so great. Go out with a sense of humor. Like good for you. <laughs> and everyone's just like horrified by like all that stuff that I drift to. Like there's even like I forget the name of the a person involved but she was basically she was raped and then she spoke out about it and as punishment for soiling this man's reputation she was locked in a den of lions to be eaten and that just didn't happen because like supposedly God spoke and the lions protected her and I'm pretty sure I haven't read it since like I was a kid but I'm pretty sure like the rapist was either mauled by lions or died somehow that's and crazy yeah so like I'm definitely really really drawn to like I don't know, things with justice or things with, like, a morbid twist because it's just stuff that is always, yeah. I don't know, I've always been interested in. Like, even if you look at Greek mythology, like, it sounds cliche, but, like, the Hades and Persephone myth, like, <laughs> I'm a sucker for that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, take it's you cute. to the underworld. Don't eat anything. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, well, if I eat something, I get to stay, and there's a pretty cute dude who's, like, the king, so... <laughs> I love you. It goes both ways. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> if you could, this is a little fun one. <laughs> Throw if it. you could make everyone, either in the world or at Western, oh gosh, <laughs> believe in one myth. Oh no! I don't what even would know. It be? I don't even and know why? what I would do with this. Oh my! Take God. a minute to think. It's all good. Definitely a good question, huh? Okay. I think I'm going to go with the conception of Horus because I'm, oh my God, I'm terrible with names. Because again, this is all stuff I was like grade five. We mentioned like ancient Egypt in class and I was like, oh my God, cool. We take the brains out of the noses of dead people. Awesome. But I'm pretty sure his mom is Isis. And um, so her husband, Osiris, was murdered by Set. So... Obviously, yeah, ringing a bell. Yeah, continue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all good. So she's very, very distraught, and somehow she manages to like reconstruct her husband's dead body, and has like necrophiliac sex with him, and then conceives Horus, which is like the weirdest thing <laughs> when you think of like religion, like based on like my Catholic upbringing. You think of what is like you know Virgin Mary, like it's pure and good, and there's nothing involved that's kind of questionable. And it's like, no, we're just gonna. Screw our dead husband because let's face yeah. it. So and then Horus like basically like just came out and there's different um, interpretations of like where he has come out from. So like my favorite one is like he comes out of like the throat, and I just think that's powerful because it says so much about like just having something to say and and something to do and accomplish. And so essentially like you can go on forever with the rest of the myth, but like Horus ends up defeating Set and then like. Egypt is reconciled and he's like the guardian of Egypt and all that but I just I don't know that myth is so strange and obscure and like like I said it's got some questionable things in it and I just I love that about it like it's just so strange and obscure so I would go with that one just because it's interesting no it completely fits in like I'm I know you're excited for mythic yeah <laughs> yep. I, I saw that come out and I was just like oh my god I can speak oh thank god and I was just like literally sitting for three months and going, oh my god what do I write about what do I write about I've got so many things and yeah anyway so, so. so how did profit come to be like you just you just sat down is that your I yeah <laughs> typically what I do this sounds awful but I'll like sit and I'll look at a theme and I'll be like that's great I want to write something and then I'll just be stuck 
for like months or weeks or however oh long is left. And then the night before, I'm like, aha, idea. And then I just write it in one draft and I send it off, which is awful. You should always get your work edited. Don't do what I do. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, I was just kind of like working on some essays. And then I thought, you know, like writers can kind of be considered prophets. If you consider like, because prophets essentially like Ezekiel, who's referenced in like the poem that I have there, um, you know, spoke the word of God. And there's like this literal part in the, the book of Ezekiel where God like brings down this book and he calls it a roll. And I don't know why you would call it a roll, because whenever I think of a roll, I think of bread and bread sounds delicious, but I would not want to eat a book. So he literally <laughs> oh makes Ezekiel. Yeah, I was just like, I don't know to go with it, I guess. But he like literally makes Ezekiel eat a book and then he just goes around spewing the word of God quite literally and maybe it's because he ingested the book but um, I just kind of thought of how like as a writer my entire life I've ingested different novels and different poetry pieces and things that have inspired me and then it all just kind of like bubbles out and you know who's to say what is the word of God and what isn't like I don't know I'm not going to say like I'm definitely a prophet but I think the idea of um, having the writer be a prophet and saying something that like either was meant to be said or like has some higher purpose is very interesting I don't know necessarily whether I buy into it or not because <laughs> there are so many writers out there and a lot of questionable books I'm looking at you 50 shades of gray uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah I just I was fascinated by that idea so I sat down and I was like all right we're gonna take some quotes out of Ezekiel and we're gonna kind of turn the prophet into an everyday poet and see what happens. I love it. I love it so much. Perspective, <laughs> narrative, it's amazing. <laughs> My family would say, oh, you're going to be damned. <laughs> <laughs> do you get that a lot? Do you, do you have oh, their support gosh. in terms of, like, do they know you write? Do oh, they have they read your stuff? in terms of my writing? Uh, when I was four years old, I read my first book, and I went to my mom, and I was like, that's what I want to do. And she's like... I don't get it. And I was like, well, what that person did for me, I want to do. Like, I wasn't very good at articulating. I was four years old. But I just, like, that story made me happy. And it, it just, it was something that had some significance to me. So I was like, I'm going to do that. And I never changed my mind. My mom definitely tried to force me into the way of science because, like, that's where, she's like, she's a biologist, immunologist. Like, that's where her education comes from. My brothers are very scientific and mathematical. No one really knows where I came from. I just kind of, I don't know, maybe maybe God just threw me down and was like, well, <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> but, yeah, so they, they know I write, but they're not, uh, they've never been supportive of it. I got my first publication done, and I gave it to her, and she's like, wow. That's great. And didn't even look at it. And then she called me the next day and she's like, so I ran into parents of some kid I went to high school with. And she's like, oh, so how's your kid doing? My kid's published. And I was just like, oh, you do not get to say you don't get to be a writer and then like use me as brag bait. Like, that's just not a thing. Mm. So it's definitely like they don't support it, but they will use it to make themselves look better, which sounds awful. And I'm not definitely I'm not saying like I'm so superior that I'm fantastic and I make them look better. But like I don't I don't agree with the morals of it. And uh, like that's. Additionally, like why I changed my name within the uh, hyphen publication, I just kind of got to a point within this year where I was like, you know what, they've never supported me. They've never done anything to like further my creative career. So why should their names be attached to my work? They have no right. So, I mean, I mean, the word solo kind of speaks for itself. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming. It was such a pleasure speaking to you. I thank you for having me. Honestly, (laughs) it's been an honor. Honestly, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) 
Hello, this is Nara Montero, a director at Iconoclast Collective and the host of Iconocast. I'm here speaking to Dr. Cal Gervais, uh, Associate Professor and Graduate Chair of Classics here at Western. A few of his areas of interest are classical Latin, epic and lyric, late antique and medieval Latin literature, violence in the ancient world, in particular Thebaid, as well as digital humanities and classical reception in comic books. He taught me classics and pop culture, one of my favorite courses in my four years here at Western. Thank you for being here, Dr. Gervais. You're welcome. You introduced me much better than I did. <laughs> no, it's a it's great. Um, just a kind of general question uh, right away, maybe looking quite a bit back. What brought you to classics in the first place? Uh, that is a good question. This is my own personal story. I grew up watching a lot of Star Trek and thinking that I wanted to design spaceships. And then I decided that's not what I wanted to do. And I went to university with a science degree. And I remember being in high school and thinking, what am I going to do after I graduate? And there was a, a poster on the wall with literally different careers and how much money you made in them. And right near the top was dentist. And I said, well, I'll be a dentist then. So I went to school sort of in biology thinking I would do that. Uh, I decided I don't actually like teeth. I thought I would then become a doctor. I decided I don't like hospitals. And then it went from there to evolutionary biology and then uh, environmental biology. But in my first year, just sort of for fun, I took a first year Latin course uh, and loved it. So took a second year Latin course in my second year. And by my fourth year, I had been sort of taking Latin all the way through. And I realized I was talking about Latin the way people in my biology lab were talking about biology, and I thought this must be the thing for me. So for me, it was always the language that the Romans spoke, and from there, sort of a more general interest in the culture uh, grew. So I did an MA uh, at Queen's and then went to New Zealand for my PhD and have sort of never looked back. Awesome. So in our classics and pop culture class, one of the things that you talked about a lot that struck me was the, like, imagery of the Roman parade and how I didn't really realize how pervasive it was. We looked at it specifically in the Hunger Games and in some of the political um, rallies that we're seeing now. I was wondering, do you think its power comes from its long history or do you think it's a function of some of the intrinsic structures that happen in these gatherings? That's an interesting question. So I guess for context, um, in the Roman Republic, so before it turned into a one-man rule with emperors like Augustus, Nero, and those people. So in the Roman Republic, a general, after winning a military victory, could celebrate a triumph, which was essentially a long parade with uh, soldiers and chariots and the spoils of war and things like posters um, showing the names of the, the countries that they had conquered. So it would sort of teach the Romans about the world. And they could hold a parade through Rome. And then under the emperor, uh, under the empire, sorry, the, the emperor himself kind of was the only one who was able to do that. So I think that's what you're talking about. I think its pervasiveness in the modern world is probably linked to how it was introduced to the modern world. So in the lead up to World War II and then during World War II, uh, the Italian fascist government looked back to ancient Rome as sort of a model. They were trying to argue that they were sort of making Italy great again. They were sort of bringing back the glory that was Rome. And so they would look back to these Roman models. And especially in some of the propaganda films that they made at the time, they looked back to that idea of uh, Roman triumph as this sort of symbol of the military power of the ruler and the riches that he brings back home to benefit uh, his homeland. And so I think some of those films, first with the fascists in Italy and then with the Nazis in Germany who learned a lot about propaganda from the fascists, were really influential in later cinema um, and not even in propaganda cinema. So there was a filmmaker in Germany named Leni Riefenstahl 
uh, although she was uh, making films in the service of Nazi propaganda, had sort of innovated and mastered a lot of filmic techniques. And later filmmakers, despite the problematic nature of what she was uh, filming, um, were heavily influenced by that, even down to the first Star Wars movie at the end, after they uh, destroyed the Death Star, there's that parade where they all get the medals. And that whole layout with the crowds of people on two sides and this aisle down the middle and then the people at the front, that's taken almost directly from Riefenstahl's most famous film called The Triumph of the Will. So I think the image itself has some sort of intrinsic power because it's this sort of visual demonstration of the power of those in charge and the benefits they bring to their country. But I think the particular way it's shown these days is can be traced pretty directly through a film back to uh, 1930s German cinema. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring up that connection. We were talking a little bit about how, yes, stories can influence our lives, and that I think on a general level sounds like a very positive thing, but it can become very manipulative in the case of propaganda um, and using that imagery to make people emotional. Um, So that is certainly an image that I think has been abused. I have a story about that that you, uh, if if I'm, if that's okay. Uh, And this was another one from class, I think. I think for me, the perfect example of this imagery and these stories being used for bad purposes is with the rise of the alt-right in the States and especially on college campuses. There's a particular group called Identity Europa, and they did an advertising campaign a few years ago where they had posters with classical statues and uh, slogans like, let's become great again and reclaim our heritage. And they were sort of uh, usurping the symbolic power of classical statuary to try to make this argument that white people in America were the cultural descendants of the glory that is Western civilization all the way back to Greece and Rome. And, you know, there's nothing inherently bad or dangerous about white marble statues, but they have been used uh, throughout history, including by the Nazis, and it seems to always come back to the Nazis, but right up to the modern day as tools to advance racist agendas. So that is one that I kind of keep coming back to as things keep happening down south. Yeah, for sure. That actually connects to something I was wondering. Some people will say that for better or for worse, Roman and Greek classical civilization in particular is the foundation of the modern Western world. That is a very broad and difficult statement, I think, but I was wondering your thoughts on those claims. That's a hard one for a classicist to answer, and especially for a teacher of classics to answer, because so many scholars of classics and so many students in classics courses get interested in it because we do feel those deep connections. You know, we think of the Greeks and Romans as sort of our distant ancestors, and Classics in recent years has been sort of acknowledging that story we tell can often be a damaging story because it excludes the contributions of other cultures. It can be used to justify things like white supremacy or white nationalism. But I think just even from a pragmatic purpose, there's a worry amongst classicists that, well, if we don't study this period because it's the foundation of Western civilization, you know, why do we care about it? What sort of privilege will classics have if it's not sort of the beginning of everything? And so I haven't answered the question yet. I think as I learn more about classics, because I'm still learning, and I think as the field learns more, we've learned to acknowledge and celebrate the fact that the connection between the ancient world and the modern one 
is a lot more complicated and messy than the story we tell. So something I've been learning a lot about recently is the contribution of Muslim scholars, um, this neat contribution that they had to reintroduce Greek philosophy into Western Europe during the Middle Ages. And so contribution of other groups. And I think we've been learning that making the story more complex doesn't make it less interesting, doesn't make people want to care about the classics any more than they used to. At least in the Western world, we'll never sort of escape this feeling that there's something special about the Greeks and Romans, because there is. But I think it's important to realize that that story can very easily turn into a story that can be damaging or exclusionary or things like that. For sure. Um, to go back a little bit to your work with the Thebaid, right. in Tidius the Hero, you spent some time discussing the porous boundary between heroism and monstrosity. Right. The examples you used are very specific to the Thebaid, yeah. but I found it very compelling as an idea that kind of these things were two sides of the same coin. Sure. I was wondering if you would want to go over it a little bit, keeping in mind that many listeners haven't read the Thebaid. Sure. Yeah. Many classicists have not read the Thebaid yet. I'm, part of my job is to try to remind people that it's actually a great poem and worth reading. So the Thebaid tells the story of uh, a particular moment in the city of Thebes. So if you know anything about classical mythology, you'll probably know things about Troy, uh, Helen of Troy and the thousand ships that came to take her back. And there's a bunch of legends connected to Troy, but there's another bunch of legend from the ancient world connected to Thebes, which is this disastrous city where in every generation, brothers kill brothers, sons sleep with mothers, or people eat each other. It, it's sort of the place the ancients kept going to in their thoughts when they think of a city that doesn't work at all. And so the Thebaid tells a particular moment in that when the two sons of Oedipus, um, who some listeners might know, he's the guy that accidentally killed his father and slept with his mother, uh, the two sons of Oedipus uh, fight to the death of their father's throne. And there's a particular moment in it, uh, you referenced a guy named Tidius. He's one of the heroes who is sort of the best hero amongst the Greeks, and he has this glorious battle where he kills everyone that tries to attack him, and he's uh, just about to get his eternal reward where the goddess Athena comes down and is, is going to bring him up to heaven to sort of be a god forever. And then he goes crazy and ends up eating the brains of the guy who had mortally wounded him. So that's all the context. Um, and one of the sort of phenomena that I focus on there is that in the ancient world, a hero is not the same for the ancients as it is for moderns. So in the modern Western world, a hero is someone who does good things, impressive good things. A hero in the ancient world is someone who does big things. They don't necessarily have to be good. They don't necessarily have to be bad. They're just memorable. So Hercules is the archetypal hero for the Greeks, and he does wonderful things like kill monsters to help civilize the world and he also does horrible things like go crazy and kill his family so i guess what i talk about is a hero is someone who's far away from the everyday life and you can get far away from everyday life by getting closer to the gods and by getting closer to a monster and by this sort of circular logic that the ancients had the closer you get to the gods the closer you risk getting to being a monster. And the death of Tidius eating the brains of his enemy is sort of the perfect ancient example of that. He's just on the cusp of becoming literally a god, and then he ends up dying as the worst kind of monster because cannibalism was this, this horrible thing in the ancient world that they were eternally terrified of happening. Um, so that's 
that's kind of the gist of, of that story. Yeah. One of the other things that struck me and came up a little bit just now is the gods kind of coming down frequently and talking to characters in a lot of these stories. I feel like there's a sense, even in science fiction and fantasy, which is stuff that we talked a bit about in class as well, that doing that is a little heavy-handed in today's world. I was wondering if you think there's a place for that kind of explicit interaction with the divine in storytelling today still. Okay, I'm going to take this in a different direction than you've asked, but but I'll start by answering your question. Um, yeah, you're right. So my favorite example of that is the movie Troy. Troy is based on the Iliad, which is one of the foundational texts of Western literature. Uh, it tells the story of Troy and the gods. Yeah, uh, Zeus and Hera and all these gods are constantly coming down to interfere directly in the lives of mortals. And uh, in the movie Troy, if you've seen it, they pretty much bring the gods completely out of it, with the exception of Achilles' mother, Thetis. They sort of don't make it really explicit that she's a goddess. There's obviously something not quite normal about her, but they don't become heavy-handed and say, yeah, you know, this is a god on Earth. So the direction I'm going to take it in is another, I think I'm just giving you the greatest hits of the pop culture course, but I've thought a lot about some of these things. One of the movies we talked about in that course is The Hunger Games. And The Hunger Games tells a modern myth about Rome that had been told in Western literature and cinema since sort of the early 1900s, which is that Rome was this decadent society on the verge of collapse underneath its own greed and cruelty. And at that moment of collapse, this new force comes to rejuvenate the Roman world. In old movies from the 50s, like Quo Vadis, The Robe, and Spartacus, and right up to the movie Gladiator, that rejuvenating force is Christianity. Even in Gladiator, you sort of don't necessarily notice it until you start thinking about it. Um, if you've seen Gladiator, uh, not to spoil the ending, but Maximus dies at the end, the hero, he sort of leaves the mortal world to, to see his family that's been killed. And the place he goes with this lovely waving fields of wheat, and it's all very ethereal and heavenly. And I think it's basically supposed to be the Christian heaven without saying it's the Christian heaven. So baked into this story of a decadent empire about to collapse with rejuvenating forces is Christianity. Now, the problem to, I think, now finally answer your question, is there a place for the divine in this sort of storytelling? For the Hunger Games, the answer is no. So they tell that same story. Panem is on the verge of collapse. There's this rebellion under Katniss and uh, this attempt at sort of renewal to get something better. Uh, but the one thing that's missing from the story, I think because the author just felt that this is not sort of relevant to the world I'm in anymore, is that rejuvenating forces in Christianity. What it ends up being, and I think it's quite interesting, is Katniss sort of learns about the world and she learns about the broader patterns of history. The bit at the end after she's taken down Snow and uh, the promise of District 13 has sort of been shown to not actually work out. When she's talking to Plutarch, Plutarch Evansby, he's the one. And he sort of says, yeah, you know, things are fine now and we're peaceful now, but humans are sort of greedy and warlike and soon enough we'll go back into a bad place. But, you know, maybe this time it'll stick. Maybe this is the time when we'll finally learn from our mistakes. And so I think the renewal at the end or the answer to the question of what do you do when you live in a society on the verge of collapse is not Christianity, because I think for the author, 
that's just too simplistic these days or it just doesn't work um, the answer is well you learn as much as you can about the world and history and the patterns of history because it's a young adult novel and young adult novels are usually about growing up and so she just kind of grows up so for that particular text i don't think there's a place for the divine for lots of others there probably is for conservatives in america right now there is for sure. I mean, the Make America Great Again that Donald Trump is doing is heavily inflected with Christianity. So, you know, take that for whatever it is. Yeah. Um, thinking a little bit again about kind of the classics in The Hunger Games, but not necessarily specifically in The Hunger Games, the class that I was in with you touched a lot on science fiction, fantasy, and comics. Um, I know some of that is your personal research interest, but it did feel like a rare and much needed chance to apply all of the kind of literary theory that I'm learning in relation to, if you can call it highbrow literature, to as interesting but often ignored genres. And I was wondering if you have thoughts on why certain stories or, or ways of telling stories are so consistently prioritized over others? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think some of it can be traced right back to the classical world. The Greeks and then the Romans had a real sense that certain genres were more important than other genres. So right at the top of their hierarchy of genres were tragedy and epic, like the Iliad or the Thabiad that we were talking about before. And then lower genres were things like uh, love poetry or um, comedy. So within Western literature, there's been sort of this idea of a hierarchy of genres for a while. I think we're still influenced by that. I mean, comedies aren't likely to win Best Picture awards very often because comedy is a low genre. I think there is something legitimate about valuing a certain text, and by a text I mean uh, something you write or a movie or a comic or anything, when it's complex. I, I think there's kind of two different strategies that someone has to take when they're approaching a text, and one works really well when a text is complex, and you can kind of just keep poking at it and digging and finding new things over and over and over. And as much as I love, like, Spider-Man comics, you can't poke it very far before there's nothing left to find. But then what you can do instead is apply these other strategies where you say, okay, maybe this particular Spider-Man comic is not really complex. Maybe I can't dig a bunch out of it. But what's going on in the world that influences that comic? And what does the story told in that comic tell us about the bigger stories that we tell and that we value? So I think that's why one of the things I wanted to do with this course is as much as possible avoid highbrow stuff, even though it can make it sometimes hard to be like, well, what do I even say about this 16-page comic book? But then it forces you to think bigger and think especially, uh, to go back to the theme of all this, to think about the myths and the stories that we tell and, you know, the connection between the big stories out there in the world and this little story that, that gets told in this comic book. I'm not sure I quite answered your question. No, that was but great. Um, another question on kind of the big level as well. We've talked a lot about how classical literature trickles into the media that we create and watch today. Do you think of it as more of a, again, a trickle down from history? This is a part of, of the narratives that we've been telling for thousands of years, or do you see it more in kind of the Joseph Campbell archetypically oriented kind of universalizing, this is just a part of human nature perspective? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so for context, one of the things, and we even talk about it a little bit in the course, is there was a mythographer named Joseph Campbell in the middle of the last century, and he identified this hero's journey, which is this pattern that so many stories follow, 
whereby there's sort of a person in the ordinary world and then they leave the ordinary world for some sort of fantastic adventure and then they ultimately come back with some sort of benefit for the society that they left. Uh, and he sees that story reflected in cultures all across the world. And so the take-home message for him was that story tells us something about human psychology and about you know the way our brains are wired and the things that we think are important or the way we understand the world. The bit of complexity to add to that is that hero's journey is everywhere in modern pop culture. I don't think because of its intrinsic value, but because it heavily influenced George Lucas in Star Wars. Uh, he had sort of read the hero's journey shortly before he made Star Wars, and then he modeled it very consciously off of the hero's journey so that Luke leaves the ordinary world of Tatooine to go on these fantastic adventures, then eventually there's sort of this happy ending. And Star Wars was super successful. So we should just copy that pattern. Um, and so you can find, if you Google Hero's Journey, writer's manuals for writing Hollywood scripts that say, you know, model your stories on this. Um, in another hundred years, once the memory of Star Wars has faded, whether we'll think that that's such a foundational story, um, I don't know. So I think there's certainly something to be said for the idea that we are all human uh, and we are no matter where we're from. And so certain things are... I think, always going to interest us. But then there's these culturally specific things that happen, even down to a really specific level of the success of one movie. And you can trace, I think, what seems like the inevitability of that story pattern as much back to Star Wars as you can to anything fundamental about the story. So um, the answer is kind of yes and no. Excellent. Thank you. Um, is there anything else you wanted to touch on that we didn't bring up? Um, Good question. Let me think for a second. Oh, um, can I tell one little story about something I'm starting to work on now? Yeah. So I find myself um, going more and more into the Middle Ages because, as I said, I got into classics through Latin. And Latin, at least in Western Europe, continued to be the language of learning right up until about a couple hundred years ago. So if you were going to write anything quote-unquote important, you'd put it into Latin. Um, and I've gotten particularly interested in some stuff that was going on in the, in the 13th century, mostly in France, which is where they had rediscovered a lot of um, Greek philosophy. And I mentioned earlier, some of that came through Muslim influences. Um, and they had sort of had this renaissance in their understanding of the ancient world. And it was one of those moments in history when they felt a really close connection to the ancient world again. And one text they felt a really close connection to is a poem by another Roman called Ovid, uh, The Metamorphoses, which some people might know. And it sort of tells a couple hundred uh, Greek or Roman myths in quick succession. And for people from the 13th century, they understood how valuable this text was because it was it was one of the most complete tellings of Greek and Roman mythology, and it was obviously very learned and full of all sorts of information. But the problem they had with it is that most stories of Greek and Roman mythology are kind of horrible, and they're definitely not Christian. And people were Christian at the time. So they had to figure out, what do we do with these stories? And the really interesting thing they did is they decided to aggressively interpret most of these stories as allegories. Um, so, you know, Ovid is talking about this particular god sleeping with his particular mortal, but what he's really talking about is usually a Christian moral. And one of the things I'm really enjoying about this is some of these allegories are just completely unexpected. So one I've been working on lately is, and it's part of the story of Thebes, a king named Pentheus uh, doesn't worship Bacchus the way that Bacchus would want him to. 
And as a punishment, the king ends up being torn apart by a bunch of his family members at this religious festival. And for the ancients, that would have been a story about how you should respect the gods. And for these 13th century Christians, what they end up saying is, well, Pentheus is actually a allegory for the wise man. And each of the women who tear him apart are an allegory for a particular part of your brain because they had an understanding about the about the brain that the brain was divided into three different compartments one was for rational thought one was for memory one was for something else and so they would say this woman agave actually symbolizes this section of the brain and this woman symbolizes this section and so these sections tear up or divide the wise man in the same way that these women literally tore up Pentheus. And it's just such a stretch, but it was a very serious effort to make what was clearly very important and learned material fit into a, a contemporary understanding of the world, especially a Christian context. And so this story ended up being a scientific story about what we know about the human brain. And so it's, it's a neat example, I think, of how much we can distort the ancient world and use it for our own purposes. Um, so anyway, that's something I'm working on right now. That's very interesting. Actually, I have a friend who wrote an essay comparing, I forget which of them, but I think two of the stories from the metamorphosis to the modern conception of a waifu. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but in like Western obsession with certain Japanese cultures, like communities that are big fans of anime, um, they have this idea of just basically like a perfect wife. Uh, oh, the statue where like the statue turns into oh, uh, Pygmalion. Yes, Pygmalion. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how like she's only perfect while she's a statue, while she's not real, yeah. and kind of the conception of like this person can only be perfect awesome. because they're not real. Awesome. Which is these things never seem to get old enough that we can't connect them to something that's yeah. modern. Which is an interesting thing—the yeah. way that we can manipulate these yeah. stories to relate to. Yeah. Things that we still experience. Yeah. I, I stumbled upon one of those list uh, things. It was like, uh, you know, the 11 coolest times that uh, K-pop referenced the ancient world. And the one they were talking about was a song called Blood, Sweat, and Tears. I've seen the video. Yeah. It's like quite... Yeah. opulent it's very interesting it's set in in basically a museum with a bunch of classical statues and paintings and they make a bunch of references to icarus a kid who uh, had artificial wings and flew too close to the suns and his wings melted and he died that story has been used uh, in the modern world as a metaphor for you know young people who sort of burn out too early um, and it's neat to see that showing up in non-western contexts because they clearly have the sense that even though this is not sort of quote unquote, their culture, it's still a good way to make a point and tell a story that they want to tell. And so, yeah, that is really interesting. Thank you very much for coming in, Dr. Gervais. It was wonderful uh, to have you and to speak about this topic with you. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. This was the inaugural episode of Iconocast, the companion podcast to Iconoclast Collective. Thank you very much to Danielle Solo and Dr. Kyle Gervais for coming in to speak with us. I encourage you to seek out Danielle's poetry, some of which you can find in our previous issues and in Mythic, and to look into Dr. Gervais' wonderful classes and fascinating research. Theme music is by Simon Henley, Iconoclast's music coordinator, produced by Emily Charvesio, Jerica Kaduhada, and myself, co-hosted by Aisha Khan, and edited by Toria Obang. We are very grateful for the generous support of Radio Western in this endeavor. You can find copies of our upcoming issue, Mythic, at our launch party on April 4th. There will be drinks and appetizers, free fortune cookies, tarot readings by Gabrielle Drolet, poetry readings by Kristen Coate, as well as musical performances by Trading Alaska, Whaler, and Western's very own Kendra Lee Miller. 
You can visit our website and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at IconoclastUWO for more information about our launch party, newsletter, and future episodes. This is Nara Montero, and on behalf of the Icon team, thank you for listening.